3: Welcome to Psych Up Live. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips, and on this show, we'll be turning up the psychological perspective on many life issues. As the former host of Psych Up on Casozo Radio, I joined with terrific guests to host 73 shows. This show's a bit different because it includes you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. I welcome you to listen in and feel free to call into today's show at 1-866-472-5788. Now, are you a sensation seeker? Have you ever wondered why people climb Everest, jump out of planes, or ski dangerous unmarked trails? Is eagerness to experience the impact of any street drug or gambling away life savings driven by thrill-seeking? Is there really a personality trait for this? On today's show, you're going to get answers to these questions and much more. Our guest is Dr. Ken Carter, professor of psychology at Oxford College of Emory University. He's a psychotherapist and researcher of 20 years with a particular interest in sensation-seeking and the high sensation-seeking personality. Dr. Carter is a recipient of awards from the National Institutes of Health, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, In earlier work at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Carter researched smoking as a risk marker for suicidal behavior in adolescents. He has published in known magazines and has been on such programs as Connect with Kids and NBC's Today Show. Dr. Ken Carter, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live.
4: Yeah, thanks thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today.
3: Yeah. Well, let's start. Let me ask you, what got you interested in sensation-seeking?
4: Well, you know, it's actually something I've been really curious about for quite some time. You know, I, I noticed that I had some friends and some clients who seemed to draw chaos to their lives. I'm sure everybody knows someone uh, that's a little bit like that. And, and I wondered like, you know, why they would want more chaos. And I discovered that there were some people who seemed to thrive in chaotic environments. And it sort of got me interested in, you know, in the, in the research. And I stumbled across this concept called uh, sensation seeking. And mm. from a uh, researcher named Marvin Zuckerman, who's mm. been researching sensation seeking for, for decades. And so it was really this sort of treasure trove of research around the high sensation-seeking personality.
3: Mm. Now, l- let's clarify a little bit. So, what would be the difference between someone who's a sensation-seeker or a thrill-seeker as opposed to someone whose life's just a complete mess? They don't pay their taxes. They don't pay their bills. Um, they have problems yeah. at work. <laughs> yeah yeah
4: yeah. I mean, so there are a lot of things that can create chaos in an individual's life. You know, um life circumstances and 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 habits and things like that can create chaos. The thing that's different about a sensation seeker is that they actually thrive. In a, in a situation where their senses are bombarded a little bit more. So mm-hmm. not everyone that has a chaotic environment is going to be a sensation seeker. In fact, some sensation seekers have really, you know, sort of clean environments in terms of chaos. Um, but they, they really operate best in the midst of lots of, of stimulation.
3: So these are folks who seek and function and want stimulation. And as such, then... Dr. Carter, they're often taking risks that maybe some of us wouldn't take. Some might, but so is that it?
4: Yeah, yeah. And so and the interesting thing about the risk is that the risk is not what they're after. Um, the risk is really the price of admission that they <laughs> have to pay for these stimulating environments. And so, you know, and they don't always go for the riskiest thing. So they did, they did a research um, about um, people who were divers, for example, and mm-hmm. the high sensation seekers didn't necessarily always dive lower, but they dived where the interesting things to see are. So the thing about the risk is that there are times when you have to take those risks in order to get the most stimulating kinds of things. And so they're, they're drawn towards those risks. And the other part is they don't necessarily see the same risks as the rest of us do. Um, They may not perceive those environments as being as risky.
3: I think that's so true. When I work with couples uh, and the man is like a a great skier and he wants Mm -hmm. to try very risky slopes and all she can think about, broken arm, broken leg, can't work, can't pay the bill. So their, their appraisal of the risk is very different.
4: Yes, yes.
3: And But for the person who's the sensation seeker, they somehow put the broken arm, broken leg, can't pay the bills out of their mind because the drive to, to know what that freshly, you know, um, that, that, that path or that, or that run, you know, to be the first one down that run far out trumps whether they might break their leg and not pay the bills.
4: Right, right. That's part of it. The other part is I I think their perception of risk is just very different. Their bodies um, perceive those risks as being less risky. And so um, they they did a study, for example, a while ago of... um, of following behavior. So you know they, they put individuals in cars and they had them follow a pace car ahead of them. And as you can imagine, the high sensation seekers drove closer to that car ahead of them than the low sensation seekers did. That makes sense. The part that's sort of surprising is that the, when they measured physiological things like heartbeat and stress response, the high sensation seekers were less stressed even though they were driving closer.
3: I definitely could relate to this. Um, Having sons and a brother-in-law and a husband, we were once, we once took ski um, lifts up to the top of mountains to mountain bike down. And my heart was pounding. And I kept thinking, what's the flattest? Where is there even a flat path? And they were beyond excitement. They were going to take every rock, every curve. Every, and so I think if, we had, if you had um, looked at us at that point, neurophysiologically or biologically, they were definitely calm. And I was very, very anxious. So I do think that there's really a different take. And your body registers it differently.
4: Absolutely. And that's the thing to me that's really fascinating. It's sort of the invisible thing that's involved in this is what's mm. going on inside of your body.
3: Now, let me ask, uh, in, in your work online and even you have a survey that we could all take um, mm-hmm. for our listeners, it's a, uh, it's a sensation-seeking survey. It's at buzz.kencarter.com, and people can get scored for the four components of sensation-seeking as well as an overall score. Maybe let's talk about those four components.
4: Yeah, yeah. So this is an update of Zuckerman's classic survey um, that I sort of updated the language a little bit to make it a little bit more uh, modern. And when you, when you take the survey, you'll, the score you get back will tell you about the four different components. Now, when we typically think of someone who's a thrill seeker, that's actually only one of the components of sensation seeking, which is called thrill and adventure seeking. Um, these are people who are drawn towards really dangerous kinds of things. It could be things like roller coasters or driving fast or even, even those people who fly those sort of wingsuits out of air.
2: Right. Um, right. That's
4: that thrill and adventure seeking, or danger is a part of it. Um, the other component um, that's an interesting part is called experience seeking. Um, these, this component um, measures uh, your desire for unusual experiences. They may not be things that are dangerous, but they're unusual kinds of things. It could be travel, it could be being drawn to unusual people, or even being drawn to unusual foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so people mm-hmm. who are likely to try the strangest thing on the menu those are more likely to people to be people who are high in experience-seeking.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay.
4: The last two components of sensation-seeking tell you a little bit about the style of the sensation-seeking you might do. One is called disinhibition. Um, this is your ability to be unrestrained. Um, so people that score... Um, low on that or always look before they leap. Um, the people who score high just leap. <laughs> so they just, you know, they, they want to just do whatever they want to do. And the last component is called boredom susceptibility. This is an interesting one. Boredom susceptibility tells you how likely are you to become bored and how much you can tolerate being bored. And so mm. people who score low never get bored people who score really high not only do they get bored relatively quickly but they can't they get they get them irritated when they get bored
3: Mm. so a few of these have some overlaps with oh actually some symptoms so if i were to let let me just ask you if there's an addictive quality so if i um ski one mountain and it's very very treacherous and then it's like, oh, I'm not skiing that again, I've got to try something new. Is there, is that a kind of boredom overlapping, that thrill-seeking, and or is it sort of like, um, now it's come become a bit more familiar, so it's not as thrilling?
4: Right, right. And so, not all high sensation seekers are going to score high in boredom susceptibility, but mm-hmm. those that do are going to want something different each time um, for those experiences. Um, I have met some high sensation seekers that score low in boredom, and they mm. say they, they, they ski the same slope over and over and over and over again because it's mm. different for them each time. And mm. I have other people I've met who try an unusual food, and they're saying, oh, I'll never try that again. I tried it once. I don't need to, I don't need to have it again. Mm. What they want is something different every time.
3: Mm. It's really interesting. So, I think in one of the things you wrote, the question is Would you put, would you say, someone, let's say, uh, who has ADHD, attention mm. deficit, hyperarousal disorder, would they fit into, or might they get mixed up with the boredom susceptibility folks? Because they really have, a, have trouble focusing, and it looks yeah. like they're bored, but it may not be the same.
4: Yeah, they're really easy to confuse with each other, but they're very independent concepts. And so um, you know, they're, they're, so people that score high or low in sensation-seeking is not going to necessarily give you any information about what might happen in terms of ADHD. Um, and so uh, the, the, the medications and the treatments that are going to help with ADHD really shouldn't have any effect at all on, on sensation-seeking.
3: Okay, so we've got these four components, Dr. Carr. So, would you say, is there a sensation seeking personality?
4: I would say there is. I mean, I think personality as a psychologist gives me some information on your ability to explain what's going on in an individual and also the ability to be able to predict and describe what might be going on in their lives. And the great thing about sensation seeking is it does give you a little bit of insight into what's going on and also the motivations that different people have for things. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, you know the motivations are very different than what you might expect. I mean a lot of people think that you know these thrill seekers or high sensation seekers uh, don 't care about life they don 't care about their family they just want to you know they want this buzz from their life. but their experience of those of, of those things is quite different um, than what you might imagine and a lot of them feel really misunderstood um, mm. because I think that the average and low sensation seekers aren't experiencing the same things out of life as they are.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I do think, particularly with couples, there is a disconnect in understanding. But you're really suggesting, and I think that's why the components are interesting, that it it's not just someone jumping out of an airplane and not caring how they land, that the idea that someone who wants to travel to many different countries and try different foods we could put in the category of uh, a sensation seeker in terms of being an experience seeker, really means this, there's nuance and there's really a difference under the whole category of sensation seeking personalities.
4: Absolutely. In fact, a lot of couples I think could benefit if both of them took the sensation seeking survey because then they could understand those individual components and maybe find some commonality. Um, in terms of how they can enjoy things together. You know, I know that some couples, for example, where you may have one person that scores high on thrill and adventure and experience-seeking, another that scores average in thrill and adventure-seeking, but might be high in experience-seeking. That means the couple can do experience-seeking things together, and that can be a commonality that they could share.
3: The other thing I wonder, and this is a question with personality, and that is, is... How how much can we further develop a personality trait? So if somebody never had the opportunity to do things and they marry someone who's a windsurfer or they marry someone who really wants to spend a, a month or two in New Zealand, do they in fact, um, if they open themselves up to some aspect of that, become more of a sensation seeker than they had been.
4: Yeah, I think there are opportunities to explore sensation seeking in an individual. Um, And I think, but I think the thing to remember for some individuals is, in some in some ways, you sort of are who you are. You yes. Know? So I, you know, I, when I took the sensation seeking survey, you can get a score from either zero to forty. Forty is mm. the highest. Zero is the lowest. I scored an eight. So mm. I am a low sensation seeker. Right. So right. you know, if I go to a roller coaster, I'm not going to enjoy it in the same way as a high seeker. <laughs> right.
3: Right, right. I actually, and even as we say it, and I think of my children, and I think of people I work with, they're sensation seekers on some level from the time they're little. They, there is a different quality.
2: Mm-hmm. What's
3: horrifying another kid jumping off a dune is very exciting to another kid. So, And it's early on that you kind of sometimes see it.
4: Absolutely, and I
3: could see that. Even though I've been exposed to what I find some dangerous situations with with the men I live with, um, I'm really often trying to find another way around it. It hasn't yeah. made me want to, you know, jump without looking. So I do think there's some there's some persistence, certainly, to our personalities. I was speaking to a firefighter today, and I asked if he thought that he was a thrill seeker, and he said, "Well, I think all of us." or oh, risk takers to some extent? He goes, I happen to be a thrill seeker because he's riding bikes and doing all kinds of things that mm-hmm. people would think are dangerous. But um, I, I, I'm going to come back because we're going to have we have to take a break. But actually, he talked about being a thrill seeker, but with training, it does change things. So I want to yeah. come back and speak about that. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up. On um, Variety America. We're with Dr. Ken Corder, psychologist, researcher in sensation and thrill seeking. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement, meet guests who are shaking things up, call in, and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inter-Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18.
0: Rachel Carson, in the sea around us, said, All at last, return to the sea
1: News. 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 Opinion. News. News. Hear, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 472 5787 VoiceAmerica.com.
2: You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest, at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live.
3: Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're talking with Emory professor and researcher, Dr. Ken Carter, we're talking about sensation and thrill-seeking. So, Dr. Carter, what about gender differences um, with sensation-seeking and thrill-taking and seeking? What do you think? Have you found differences?
4: Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I mean, whenever you think about gender differences and cultural kinds of differences, so typically um, men have outscored women in terms of thrill and adventure seeking. Um, but experience-seeking women tend to score higher than men. Hmm. But in the last, but if you look over the last, you know, decade or so, in terms of all the research that's been done on sensation-seeking, what you're noticing is the scores for women in terms of thrill and adventure-seeking are getting higher and higher and higher. Interesting. In fact, in some uh, some studies, they're the same as men. So to me, that really means that that the thing that was holding the women back before may have been sort of cultural kinds of things. Um, So I think that's kind of an interesting um, phenomena.
3: It is interesting. Now, you know, there's the, you can read everywhere about teenage boys being the greatest risk taker. We don't have a development of the prefrontal cortex, there's high testosterone. Well... Mm -hmm. So do you think there's some developmental um, um, kind of and hormonal pieces that make a difference there when you yeah, do see th-
4: Absolutely. And so so the, the, one of the thing one of the hormones that seems to be associated with sensation seeking is testosterone. Um, sensation seeking tends to peak in early adolescence and tends to go down slowly every year after that. Um, and so it you know, if you're a high sensation seeker in your, you know, teens and early twenties, you may get to be a little bit lower as you get older. Now the only component that doesn't tend to decrease with age is boredom susceptibility. So if you get bored and irritated by being bored when you're a kid, you're gonna be bored and irritated when you're older too.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll just go back to that story I was telling you about the firefighter. So he, he would say, and he did say, as a young man, he said, I just took too many risks, from motorcycle risks to r- all kinds of racing risks, um, car racing risks. But when I said to him, as a uniformed service person, you know, doesn't the risk get lower, the feeling of risk get lower when... Um, when you've gotten a call for 25 years and you've been, you know, on the job for 25 years. And he said, well, when the alarm comes in, you still get an adrenaline rush, but you also are very keenly aware that you have got to harness your fear. You enter a building, you cannot be tunnel vision. You know, you've you've learned skills to harness the fear so you don't just go into fight-flight without strategies for dealing with it. So I guess, you know... Um, and I think that's true of men and women, women who are emergency room docs, etc. I, I, it was good for him to remind m- me that you're still going to get that adrenaline push, but then it is harnessed by training. And right, maybe that, right. may, that may be true of great athletes too, Ken, you know?
4: Absolutely. I, I read this article in Outside Magazine, and, uh, and one of the researchers that was quoted in there said that, you know, fear is both a lock and a key. You know, mm. So it can stop you, but it can also be the thing that propels you towards action at the same time. Mm. So one, of the things, one of the things that a lot of the sensation seekers have told me, and this is something that's common among all of them, is that, th- that they really have this amazing trust of their own instincts, yes. and they feel like their body is going to know what to do. Mm. So one of the quotes I hear a lot from the high sensation seekers is "analysis is paralysis." They mm. just go forth, and they they just know they'll figure it out when they get there, um, and that's the thing that propels them.
3: I think that that's so true. Sometimes we talk about it as having a neural pathway for for certain athletic performance, et cetera. I think somebody. Um, interviewed the high divers, uh, maybe it was um, a car and he said not only did they not say they were uh, frightened or was it did it feel risk taking, is that they were in a zone and that's the kind of thing where your body sort of goes on its own. You, mm-hmm. you trust it and you trust it to do that.
4: Right. And they yeah. enjoy being in that zone. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a researcher, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi calls it the flow state. And Mm -hmm. so that 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 those high sensation seeking activities get them in that flow state.
3: Mm. Um, Now let me ask you: So, from a neuropsychological, in terms of the new neuroscience, do we know anything about are the brains of sensation seekers, be they high performing athletes or surfers or um, uh, divers, are they different from someone who's a low? sensation seeker?
4: A little bit, yeah. So what we know is that there are two chemicals that are important um, and a little bit different in high sensation seekers than average or low sensation seekers. One of them is cortisol. So cortisol, I'm sure you've heard about before, is the stress hormone. It gets us ready for that fight or flight um, response. And I like to add freeze to that because sometimes Mm. you can't fight or flee and you end up freezing instead. Mm -hmm. Um, They find that in high-sensation seekers, they don't produce a lot of cortisol in Mm. those high-sensation-seeking experiences. And so their body is not perceiving those situations as stressful. That's Mm. why their heartbeats aren't as high. That's why they don't feel as stressed. The other thing that's really important in terms of the neurobiology is a, a neurotransmitter called dopamine, so dopamine, so neurotransmitters are chemical messengers that help the, the brain communicate from one part to another, and dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's been associated with pleasure. And right. so, high sensation seekers produce more dopamine than low, than average and low sensation seekers in those high sensation environments. So, if you combine those together, what you see is that someone that's in a really risky environment. They're less stressed, but they feel more pleasure. And that so, combination is what's so attractive about those experiences to them.
3: Well, they get a bigger payoff for less cost. Exactly. You know, you who, know. Would,
4: who wouldn't want that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right.
3: Absolutely. So, you know, if, if your heart's not beating and instead you just can't wait to jump, mm-hmm. and in fact, you know, the payoff is so thrilling it makes sense that you would repeat that type of behavior. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah.
4: Really? So they're Jeez. flowing in the situations where I would be freaking, right? <laughs> and so I'm in that situation. Yes. I'm producing massive amounts of dopamine that are right. pro- not do- massive amounts of, of cortisol, cortisol that might be masking any increases in dopamine. So I'm f- frightened, scared. You know, I'm ready to flee from that environment. Um, I'm having a very different experience than. Um the other person.
3: Yes, neurophysiologically. And yeah. you would wonder could it really be that people are wired different from the start. So right, that, right. you know, you have little ones who are willing to take risks and some other kids not raising their hand and they're not trying it.
4: Yeah. About seventy um, percent of sensation seeking tends seems to be genetic. So it also mm. tends to run in families, too.
3: Well, I think that that is probably true. Um, yeah. Someone someone did a book on uh, surfing in the back cover. He's surfing, and the little son, who's got to be no more than three, is just hanging on his back as they go through a curl. I get anxious looking at this picture. I know. But, I know. quite frankly, he's wired probably just like Dad. That was a thrill. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs>
3: it, it's really wild. Um, so yeah, one of my let's...
4: favorite things lately to do is if you uh, you know g- Google um, roller coaster faces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you take some roller coasters and they'll take photographs of people in a certain part of it, it's really fascinating to look at these images because some of the people, look they're just so excited, and the other half are just terrified by Great. exactly the same thing. And well, that, them- to me, is sort of a, a way of capturing that, what's, that invisible thing in our brain that's causing us to react differently. You know, you can see it on their faces.
3: Now, I would wonder if the roller coaster folks and the horror story folks are even a tad different than the jumpers and uh, the adventure thrill seekers because they've almost found a way to get that rush on the roller coaster in somewhat of a, of a boundaried situation. The chance of the car flying off the, the coaster is much less very low right compared yeah. to skiing a back mountain slope that's never been plowed with a snowboard yeah. you know it so, is it is, it,
4: yeah quite different for sure um, but but to 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 some high sensation seekers again the, the 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 risk is just the price of admission, and so for their so, so if you can you know for, for some of them that roller, that speed feeling is sort of what they're after. Okay. And if okay. you have some people that are, you know, low in disinhibition and low in boredom, but they're high in terms of thrill and adventure, the roller coaster may be enough for them. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and it's, so it's easy to get to, it's, it's accessible, because a lot of these high sensation-seeking activities are really expensive to do. And so, Mm -hmm. some people uh, resort to roller coasters or, uh, you know, speeding or, you know, sort of less expensive ways to get that thrill.
3: Mm. Now, I asked people about horror movies lately in preparation Uh. for our show. And one woman said to me, I cannot, I can't tolerate them. My husband's addicted to them. And I said, what do you think the the difference is? And she said, well, he says that he enjoys it, and he reminds himself all the time, it's it's a movie. And she yeah. said, I can't get the images out of my head, and they're very disturbing to me. So there's a real difference that people talk about.
4: Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. You know, high-sensation-seeking... Um, tens, there are a couple, couple different things. So the kinds of media that high-sensation seekers enjoy is, can be slightly different than average and low-sensation seekers, especially when it comes around boredom susceptibility. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the, the higher the level of boredom susceptibility, the more the individual wants to be surprised. They want unpredictable media experiences, things that you're not going to expect. Because once they've sort of figured out what's going to happen in their head, they're right. bored.
3: Right. You know, so the,
4: horror movies, lots of unexpected kinds of twists and turns. And, and I think they can tolerate the, the gore of that because they're not producing as much cortisol anyway.
3: Right. And they're seeking the thing that's... Hor- He's seeking the thing that's horrifying her. She's right. dreading an image of someone's arms being cut off, and he's curious about how just gory is this. So yeah, he, they're yeah. coming about it so different. Yeah. You know, as we, as we,
4: they, they want something they yeah. haven't ever seen before. Yeah.
3: Yes, yeah. Now, it seems to me when we're looking at your categories, mm-hmm. so everybody still feels a little safer than the disinhibition seeker who is willing to take any street pill at a gathering, and give it a shot, So, or to um, sleep with anyone, or to right. mix alcohol with anything someone's saying they got off the street, and is really terrific, so there's no body control like our dive is there, and there's no, it's just a movie there, those folks really seem to be in a much more dangerous type of thrill-seeking
4: yeah they can be and so for them the the draw of the pleasure is way um you know more important than the than the risk that they may perceive and so they they're just jumping into it You know, instantaneously without really considering the consequences. Um, We were talking before about um, how age may be involved in this, and and we know that, you know, our our brains aren't fully done until, you know, the mid 20s, especially the frontal lobe areas where, you know, decision making. Um, capabilities um, are, are 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 helped by, by by that part of the brain, um, and so you have you if you have individuals who already don't perceive risks, and you have a not fully developed brain that doesn't really understanding what those consequences may be, um, it can be a tough combination. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of sensation seekers especially as they get older, have someone or or something in their life that acts as their anchor, someone Mm. that either reminds them that they shouldn't be doing these dangerous things or a reason not to that's more important than the sensation that they're they're after.
3: You're so right because I have heard particularly men say, now that I have kids, I would never risk doing such and such. Right. So, right. you know, so that I think that idea of that anchor as somewhat of a mediator can really make a difference. Absolutely. When we, when, when I first came across uh, your work and the whole idea of sensation-seeking, um, Dr. Carter, the thing that hit me because I do so much trauma work is how I had seen sensation-seeking as a symptom. I'd seen mm-hmm. it as a symptom of mass depression in men And I've seen it as a symptom, particularly for returning military. It's like an antidote to the numbing of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I've wondered if you've seen that or thought about how that fits in.
4: Yeah. So, especially and what you know there's been a revision to their diagnostic and statistical manual um, DSM5 um, when they when they updated the criteria for PTSD, they added a new symptom which is recklessness oh, okay. um, and so one of the things that you sometimes will see in individuals with PTSD or acute stress disorder is this recklessness that they see now, which is very different than what you'd expect in sensation seeking, because the sensation seeking was probably there ever since they in early adolescence, and they would probably, if you ask them, "How long have you been riding motorcycles or want to ride motorcycles?" That they'll probably say, "Since I was a little kid." Mm-hmm. But if all of a sudden you see this recklessness, if all of a sudden you see this risk-taking behavior, then it's probably not sensation seeking. It's okay. probably something else going on. Mm-hmm. Now, Interestingly, um, s- people who are high sensation seekers have lower rates of PTSD and lower rates of anxiety disorders. The sensation seeking tends to be protective of, the, uh, of those kinds of conditions with them because they're able to really manage those um, situations in a very different way because of their lower cortisol levels they experience.
3: Interesting. You know, we're going to take a brief break. That's such an interesting. We're going to bring come back maybe with the benefits of mm. sensation-seeking. Um, we're taking a brief break. You're listening to Psych Up Live. I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Carter. We're talking about sensation and thrill-seeking. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: counts call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 472 5787 voiceamerica.com families today face unique challenges marriage parenting and family forms have changed a lot in the last century
4: Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though, so this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live.
3: Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Kenneth Carter and we were just speaking actually about the benefits of sensation seeking dr carter we were mentioning it just may be that um if you are deployed if you are a uniform service person or maybe even if your family's facing a natural disaster and you're a sensation seeker did you say you might actually do better
4: yeah i mean so i think that you know what's going on for a lot of people who experience chaotic environments, whether or not they be first responders or in emergency situations or in disaster situations, the the high sensation seekers are really able to... Um, to focus really well during those high-sensation chaotic environments. And so the thing that would be overwhelming for me, because I'm producing mass amounts of cortisol, it may not be as overwhelming to a, a high-sensation seeker. So this is exactly this person you want you know, landing an airplane during an emergency or right. working in an emergency room, because they can be focused and, and really chill during those experiences.
3: So, it's interesting. It's almost telling us that neurophysiologically, being wired somewhat as a sensation seeker really puts you in a position in life <clears throat> to have an edge in certain certainly in certain situations,
4: yeah, yeah. so one of the ways I think about it is that you know we need low sensation seekers like uh, me to stop <laughs> us from going into those situations. But if we find ourselves in disasters, we need high sensation seekers to get us out of them. <laughs>
3: Now, in one of your, um, I think in one of your writings, you talk about a kind of normal distribution of, um, you know, sensation seekers. So, we had the very high on one end and the very low on the other. And I guess Mm -hmm. most people somewhere in the middle. And in terms of couples, I was thinking about it today, probably couples could be different. But I don't know that they could be at the most far extremes, um, yeah. Yeah,
4: I think I think the thing that might be difficult about that is that, you know, high sensation seekers just want someone that is, you know, different from them. So if it's high or low or wherever, they're going to be fine because that's just a different experience for them. The thing that becomes a problem for some individuals is this whole anchor thing we were talking about previously where some high sensation seekers have these anchors that help them from getting into too much trouble.
3: Mm-hmm. Sometimes
4: the average and low sensation seeker may not want to play that role all the time. You know, you know, you know, sort of pulling the person back from these things that are really exciting to them. And some high sensation seekers don't want anchors. They think they want right. them, but they actually don't. And it ends up putting the, the relationship in a stress, in a stressful situation.
3: Mm. One one thing that I've seen work is when one is a high sensation seeker and the other is not so much. But they don't mind him or her going to Everest because they're going to sort of live vicariously through them. It's like we're both going to Everest, even though that <laughs> one of them is going. Right, and that's right. a plus for both because then he or she doesn't think that this uh, month in Costa Rica doing whatever he or she is doing for a research that seems a little bit um, dangerous is really um, anathema to their partner, but rather supported in some way. You've got there's got to be a way that it's negotiated so that it's a win win for both.
4: Yeah, yeah, and I think that I think you're absolutely right. Really, sort of negotiating it and and sort of looking at making sure there's time to do things together, but also you want to make sure that that you know knowing that someone is high in it, thrill and adventure seeking. And not wanting to change that part of them, but trying to find ways that they can do that that are going to be healthy and beneficial. Now, whether it's you know adventure sports like the tough mudder, you know those mud runs that people will do, um, or even you know even the kind of exercise, you know, so CrossFit is draws a lot of people who are high sensation seekers, Um, and so making sure they have those safe activities they can be involved in to really be able to experience what those high sensation seekers experience um, in, those, in those situations is important, I think.
3: These, these are the times when I say to, particularly let's say women, if you're dating him and you're not telling him that you are terrified on the back of his motorcycle, <laughs> don't let him think you love this because then when you marry, he's planning bike trips, he, you're well, going to be, you You, you got to be authentic here. If you hate it, you got to let them know it now. Um, right. So that, that's the other thing is the authenticity from the beginning. So you right. know really who you're marrying. And I think if enough time passes, you start to see the look on the person's face and you start to know, hmm, she doesn't want to dive. She does not Except, want to dive. Yeah. yeah.
4: You know, One of it's, the it's, problems that some high sensation seekers have is they don't necessarily always have empathy for average and low sensation seekers okay, because they point. don't feel the fear that we do in those situations they may not understand how you're feeling unless you tell them
3: mm-hmm. um, and
4: so that's going to be an important conversation to have Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, so taking the sensation-seeking survey and saying, look, look where I am in terms of totally <laughs> adventure-seeking. I'm not going to enjoy these kinds of things. And that's hard for some high sensation-seekers to, to understand because they love how they feel and they assume that other people would feel the same way.
3: Mm. And I, I definitely couples ought to take, go to com and take it and share results because I'm not certain... I think it tempers uh, Dr. Carter over time, but Mm -hmm. I think your sensation seeker, you know, it it doesn't really change. I I shared with you, I have a brother-in-law, he's terrific, I love him, but he's been sensation seeking since he's very young, marine, the whole thing, and now the latest It was in his 70s, where was he? Uh, Spending a few months in Russia and China on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and we never know exactly where he's headed, but my mother-in-law asked me before she passed. She said, just keep an eye on him. or know where he is somewhere. So what I literally do is look at the paper, and if there's a fire in yellowstone mm, i figure he's somewhere in that vicinity and i'm very really wrong i'm very really drawn
4: rude. to yeah, he's drawn he's, towards those but, but yeah. he's
3: smart he's athletic and it has not changed so don't think you're marrying someone who's a sensation you know seeker who's gonna turn like let's just you know hang around and read books i don't know that that's gonna happen
4: no, no. And, and, and you know, there may be some time that you can find some things that are going to be commonly um, enjoyable, but I think that thrill and adventure-seeking feeling that people have is something that, um, you know, they can't get any other way sometimes.
3: Now, let me ask you, and, and, you, and I want our listeners to know you're going to be a t- doing a TED Talk uh, later this month, in all your research and with speaking to people and and all the data online, what's the most surprising thing can you've come across with regard to sensation seeking?
4: I think the most surprising thing um, that I've come across is really how how they're experiencing the world in a really different way and I mm-hmm. think that's that's one of the things that that sort of is is um, fascinating to me as a psychologist, is that, you know, my experience and the person right next to me's experience can be very different. And, you know, I, and I, I guess I didn't have a full appreciation For what the world is like for those individuals, Um, Mm -hmm. and I kind of see it almost as a superpower. You know, it's 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 this you know the the you know the ability to be in a chaotic situation and and be focused is really to me an amazing quality. Um, as a low sensation seeker that gets easily overwhelmed, you know that's something that's really appealing to me. But I love my low sensation seeking <laughs> personality. It's 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 awesome.
3: <laughs> well, well, see, I, I, am I wrong to think every time you investigate, I relate a little bit. Every time I get a new book, every time I think of a new theory, I'm excited. Um, exactly. It, it may not excite anybody else, but it's it's. In some ways, every time you decide to study something different and go public with it, that's risk-taking. I mean, doing a TED Talk would just panic some people completely. Um, Public speaking is like one of the number one fears, but Mm -hmm. you're going to go ahead and do that.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, and, you know, and, and, I, and I think in my own way, I have my, you know, I, I'm a, I have my confidence about the things I do well, and one of the things I always tell my students is, you know, getting to know yourself, playing to your strengths is one of the greatest things that you can do, but you can't play to your strengths unless you know what they are, um, and I think that high sensation seekers and low sensation seekers alike, if you know what your qualities are and what your strengths are. There are ways that you can sort of make the most of those things.
3: And I think we've seen, I know we mentioned on the break that, so knowing your strengths and whether you are at one extreme, high sensation seeker or low, harnessing the strengths and taking, though, I think everybody does have to take some realistic risks or you would Mm -hmm. not move in life. Um, And being able to tolerate the failures and knowing their lessons learned, a kind of um, growth mentality. And that kind of risk-taking is what allows us to write the paper, try out for the team. Without some ability to take a risk, I don't know that you could grow.
4: You know? yeah, yeah, and I think part of that is understanding wh- how you cope with when it doesn't work out the way you want it to. You know, and so you know, even with foods. You know, I talk, I did a, I did a, uh, a week where I was talking with fearless foodies, people who would eat almost anything. Okay. Um, and I, I. And what I learned from that is that they all said, you know, it's not going to kill you. At the very most, you just won't like it. So why mm-hmm. not just try it anyway? And so, mm-hmm. you know, there are individuals who just always want the same kinds of things, but, you know, why not try something a little bit different? Why not put yourself out there? And, you know, and there's and this really interesting study they did a, a little while ago where they had people, you know, write down the things they were worried about, and mm-hmm. what they discovered in the research was that 80% of the things that people were worried about never happened. And the mm-hmm. 20% that did, they were able to handle it better than they thought. And so that handling that disappointment better than you think makes it easier for you to take those risks,
3: mm-hmm. even if you're
4: a low sensation seeker like me.
3: That's a great reminder. Now my, I'm sure my family's saying she will not try different foods. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of
3: risk-taking to do after this show. Uh, listen, I, I want to thank you again. But before, I, how would people... Take your survey. I know you love to hear stories and you want people to share them. How would they find you, Ken?
4: Yeah, if so you go to com and there's a tab there for sensation-seeking. You can take the sensation-seeking survey there. And there's also a little button at the very bottom of that same page that says, I'd like to share my story. So if they want to you know, tell a story or they want to be interviewed for my book or um, uh, working on a podcast series, too, they can, they can do that. They can also find me on Twitter. I think you did, um, at Dr. Ken mm-hmm. Carter. So
3: I found you, yes. Very good. Listen, thank you again for such an informative and fascinating show, and good luck with all your research.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: You're welcome. I want to thank my listeners. Please remember you can hear this and any of our prior episodes now as a podcast on my host site, on my website, which is www.couplesaftertrauma.com, on the podcast app of your iPhone, and on iTunes under the heading Psych Up Live. Next week, we have a very special show. It's Surviving Cancer, Personal Glimpses of Resilience. You're going to be very moved and very informed by it. Please remember to drop me a comment or a question at RadioHostPhilips at gmail.com or tweet me at Healing for Couples. Until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening.